enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. friend uh, who took a trip to New Zealand last month, uh, and he finally got around to telling us about it. Of course, it was amazing, all the hiking and wonders of nature and the people that you meet in a country that is sustained primarily through tourism and Hobbit movies. (laughs) He mentioned the stargazing, though, and of course, it set me off. It's embarrassing how quickly I can suddenly start spouting facts about space. I actually did a podcast about that, I'll say, and then it takes me a few minutes of lecturing to remember that not everyone cares as much about space as I do. I'm trying to save it for the podcast. This whole project started as a means for me to vent my space knowledge and curiosity, to get out of the way so I could have conversations with people that aren't about astronomical phenomena. It's been, well, not very successful in keeping me from ranting about space, but anyway... In the case of my conversation with Inda and Kate, I managed to restrain myself to talking about space for five minutes, instead of my ideal duration, indefinitely. What came up was the fact that you don't see the same stars in the southern hemisphere that you do in the northern hemisphere, which is where I live. I actually haven't been below the equator very far. Costa Rica and Mexico are as far south as I've gone. I should probably have taken note of the skies while I was down there. I'm sure I looked up, but I can only identify three constellations with any reliability. Orion, the Big Dipper, and Cassiopeia. Orion's an equatorial constellation, so it's visible from the southern and northern hemispheres at different times of the year. The Big Dipper, or Ursa Major, is visible all year in the northern hemisphere, and at specific times in the southern hemisphere. Cassiopeia is the same way. It's a circumpolar constellation, which means it appears to circle the north star, Polaris, throughout the course of the year. It's interesting that Cassiopeia is visible in the southern hemisphere at all, because Polaris certainly isn't. Once you're on the equator, Polaris is basically only visible at the horizon line, and anywhere in the southern hemisphere, it's just gone, dipped out of sight. So, what is visible in the southern hemisphere? I talked about it a long time ago, way back in episode 5, when I was addressing the Harvard computers who mapped the entire sky and cataloged star brightness. Henrietta Swan-Levitt and her cohort, they mapped what they could see from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then got photographic plates of the Southern Hemisphere to map those as well. Instead of using Polaris to find the celestial northern pole, observers in the Southern Hemisphere can find the southern celestial pole by using the Magellanic Clouds, so named because the explorer Ferdinand Magellan used them to navigate around the world in the early 1500s. He described a larger and a smaller cloud that helped him orient himself and his ships. They are two cloudy patches in the night sky. The small Magellanic Cloud is further south and fainter than the large cloud. In the 20th century, Henrietta Leavitt used the small Magellanic cloud to help her deduce the famous period-luminosity relationship that I talked about in episode 5, which allowed astronomers to determine the distance to star clusters and nearby galaxies. 
the Magellanic Clouds are actually the third and fourth closest galaxies to the Milky Way. They are irregular galaxies, which I spoke about in episode 23. It means that they aren't symmetrical, and they don't have a central supermassive black hole. These galaxies both orbit our own Milky Way galaxy. Because these clouds can't be seen from the northern hemisphere, they don't have any classical mythology names associated with them, the way that Cassiopeia or Ursa Major do. You can tell those constellations got their names from the Greeks and the Romans, respectively. Instead, the Magellanic Clouds have stories based in Australian story, Polynesian navigation, and Maori wind prediction. They did get included in John Baer's star catalog, Oranometria, which came out in 1603 and introduced the idea of naming stars for their constellation and then adding a Greek letter to organize them according to their relative brightness within that constellation. This will come up later because we still use it to label stars in certain well-known constellations. The brightest star in a constellation has the constellation name, and then Alpha. The second brightest is the constellation, and then Beta, and so on through the Greek alphabet. The Magellanic Clouds were included in Iranometria, but were called Nubecula Major and Nubecula Minor. Nubecula means little cloud in Latin. There were four European star catalogs of the Southern Hemisphere published throughout the 17th century. In 1603, the Dutch explorer Frederick de Houtman published a catalog of the stars he saw after he sailed along the western coast of Australia to Indonesia. He mapped 21 constellations, which really means he connected the dots to make 21 constellations. That's okay, though. Basically, no one read his catalog because he published it as an appendix to a dictionary of the languages of Malaysia and Madagascar. Not really a wide audience for that. Johannes Kepler published a star catalog in 1627 that was an edited version of my beautiful true love Tycho Brahe's star catalog with two add-on catalogs of Southern Hemisphere stars. The fourth catalog of Southern Hemisphere stars was published by Edmund Halley in 1679. This one was based on measurements he made from 1677 to 1678 when he was a 20-year-old bachelor student and making observations on the island of St. Helena off the southwestern coast of Africa. The island is, fun fact, where Napoleon Bonaparte was imprisoned after he escaped the island of Elba and then was recaptured. He wasn't there when Halley was there, though. He ended up there later. Halley was there first, making the observations. (laughs) St. Helena has notoriously shitty weather, so Halley wasn't always able to make planetary observations to truly map where stars were. He had to use Brahe's catalog to triangulate the southern stars based on what he could see of the northern hemisphere stars. In the ensuing catalog of 341 stars, Halley proposed a new constellation that was not accepted called Rober Carolinum, or the Oak of King Charles II, like the Oak Tree of King Charles II. It was a reference to the tree in which the king had to hide for 24 hours after he was defeated by Oliver Cromwell. Maybe that's why, when Halley returned to England, King Charles II gave him the recommendation that earned him his master's degree. I am getting into Edmund Halley. I gotta say, he's a kind of polymath, and I'm a fan. Anyway, in these Southern Hemisphere catalogs, there's a constellation that is... Well, I'll be more specific. It's not always referenced as a constellation in historical catalogs prior to the 16th century. It's five stars, and it's part of a larger constellation sometimes. Centaurus. In modern astronomy, though, it's its own distinct constellation, one of the 88 constellations recognized by current star maps. This is Crux, or the Southern Cross. 
It appears on the flags of New Zealand, Brazil, Samoa, Australia, and Papua New Guinea. This is the coolest thing I've learned since my astronomy professor, James Evans, told me that the logo for the car company, Subaru, is the Pleiades. Think about it. (laughs) The five stars of Crux make a cross shape. You can use this cross shape to find the Southern Pole. There's a couple articles about it. Most of them rely on triangulating the southern pole using both the southern cross constellation and a pair of stars that are called the pointers, but are properly named Alpha and Beta Centauri. These two stars, delightfully, combine two concepts I touched on earlier, bear designations and the constellation Centaurus. Sounds a bit like Centaur, right? The half-person, half-horse creature from Greek mythology? There's a reason for that. The constellation appears in the Northern Hemisphere at times, and it was seen as a character from a Greek myth, the wise centaur, Chiron. The zodiac sign Sagittarius is also depicted as a centaur, but they're two different constellations. Sagittarius is an archer centaur, and Centaurus is just a centaur centaur. (laughs) The constellation Centaurus contains the stars Alpha and Beta Centauri. Let's break the names down really quickly. The Alpha and Beta mean that these are the two brightest stars in the whole constellation. The Centauri is the genitive form of Centaur. We're going to take a quick detour into linguistics here because the genitive case is my favorite Latin case. So, Centaur is a noun describing a horse-person hybrid. In English, the word always stays Centaur. In Latin, the ending of Centaur changes depending on what the noun is doing in the sentence. If it's the subject of the sentence, it's in the nominative case, and it's centaurus. When it's in the genitive case, it's possessing something, and it is centauri. The equivalent in English is the apostrophe S combination, the centaur's bow and arrow, or HD's podcast. Alpha and beta centauri translates to centaur's alpha and beta, as in the alpha and beta that centaur owns, because centauri is a genitive form of centaurus. Of course, this is just European and American astronomy. These stars are only visible above the horizon during the summer months in the Northern Hemisphere, but Alpha and Beta Centauri appear in myths from the Southern Hemisphere. In Africa, they are two men that used to be lions. In Australia, the pair of stars were called Bermbermgle after two brothers who hunted and killed a really big emu, Tchengal, which is also a constellation, Crux, and its internal nebula, the Colsac Nebula. The Colsac Nebula isn't officially part of any modern catalog and isn't named after anyone. Its name really just comes from Colsac, like a sack of coal. It's a dark nebula, so it shows up as a dark patch against the Milky Way. I'm trying to picture this, and I'm getting really jealous of Australian stargazing because I haven't even seen the Milky Way, much less seen it bright enough that I'd notice if there was a spot missing. In terms of astronomical value... That's a loaded statement. Astronomical value sounds like a car dealership's line, and I am not a car salesperson. I guess astronomical interest is more accurate. Alpha and Beta Centauri are a source of more astronomical interest than simply being the brightest stars in the constellation Centaurus. Alpha Centauri is part of a multi-star system that consists of Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B and a third star a red dwarf called Proxima Centauri that's about four light years away from the other two. So its inclusion in the system is debatable. What kind of gravitational forces do you need to have acting on you before you count as part of a star system? I have no idea how to figure that one out. It sounds metaphysical as hell. Proxima Centauri is also not visible using standard telescopes. However, 
It is our sun's closest neighbor, hence the name Proxima, as in proximity. And it flares every now and then, so that's cool. Alpha Centauri A is the fourth brightest star visible from Earth. It is to the left of the Southern Cross and forms one of the hoofs of Centaurus. Beta Centauri is the star between Alpha Centauri and the Southern Cross, and it's another hoof for Centaurus. It also has its own proper name, Hadar. This is an Arabic word that has the flavor of ground, which probably refers to how close it is to the horizon when you see it from the Northern Hemisphere. Like Alpha Centauri, it is not truly a single star. It is three stars. Beta Centauri A is paired up in a close binary system, and Beta Centauri B orbits the binary stars at a greater distance. The Beta Centauri A binary stars are very hot and very large. Giant stars, in fact, much larger and hotter than our sun. This means that in terms of their life cycle, they are nearing the end. Their end could be tens of millions of years away, of course, but someday they will be supernovae. Right now, they are kept busy, shining away and acting as the pointer stars. A line extending from Alpha Centauri through Beta Centauri will come within a few degrees of Gamma Crucis, the third brightest star in the Southern Cross. So the pointers direct you to the Southern Cross, and then you can use both of these constellations to find the Magellanic Clouds and the Southern Pole. There's a link in the show notes that describes how to do this if you're curious. are the major constellations that are only really visible in the southern hemisphere, or at least down by the equator. However, there's one more counterpoint astronomical phenomenon, an aurora, aurora australis. There's aurora borealis in the northern hemisphere, and the southern hemisphere one is aurora australis. It's rarer, but there's a forecasting website that takes data from NASA as well as atmospheric readings and weather forecasts to deliver information about possible auroras in Australia. It tends to identify them about 10 hours out. I wonder if there's a phone app for it, too. I've talked about auroras previously, but to recap, they're triggered when energy particles from solar wind or a coronal mass ejection from our sun interact with Earth's magnetic field, causing particles near Earth to react in the upper atmosphere. The aurora australis appears most often in Australia, specifically Tasmania, and in Antarctica. They're more common near the equinoxes in March and September, which is wintertime in the Southern Hemisphere. Aurora Borealis is more common, though, which is likely why I've heard of it and not Aurora Australis before. This is a flawless segue into a quick discussion of Steve. Steve is an Aurora Borealis phenomenon that's been known in the aurora-chasing community around the world for years now. It's a purple-pinkish streak in the sky, and a citizen scientist from Calgary in Alberta, Canada named Chris Ratzlaff, decided to call it Steve. NASA has kept the name and built an acronym around it, Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement. Early research by scientists at NASA and various universities suggests that Steve is a powerful current created by charged particles in the Earth's upper atmosphere. What's really nice is that astronomers are acknowledging the value that the Aurora Chaser community brought to this phenomenon. It was Ratzlaff and other members of the Alberta Aurora Chasers that brought greater attention, as well as high-quality photography and videography, to Steve. 
I hope that was enough information about the Southern Hemisphere stars. I just really had a few to talk about. There are obviously a lot of stars in the sky, but there are a few that stay out of sight in the Northern Hemisphere. I really want to visit Australia and New Zealand to see the Magellanic Clouds and Crux and Alpha and Beta Centauri. It would be amazing to see the Aurora Australis too, though I know the chances of seeing it are microscopic, a 1 or 2 percent chance at best. For the next episode, I still want to look into Chuck Yeager, Stephen Hawking and his theories, maybe the transit of Venus and the opposition of Mars. The weird things that planets do are super useful, but I'm not sure how, so investigating that might help me understand their value. I could also discuss famous comets. If you want to hear me talk about something else that's related to space, you can send me an ask on my Tumblr, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at HD in the Void, all one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, because, frankly, I'm not seeing an end in sight for these unreliable releases, but I do want to tell you about space facts. I don't want you to miss an episode. You can rate and review the podcast, too, if you feel so moved. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it makes me feel like singing Bohemian Rhapsody. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to make you feel like your favorite Queen song, too. The next episode will hopefully be up on May 14th or 21st. I'm taking a beach trip the weekend before the 21st, so I'm going to aim to have one ready before then, but who knows what this next week will bring. (laughs) You can find my sources for this episode music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD. Signing off. <laughs>